You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I can't resign from the human race because it's discrimination. I can't resign as an American citizen because it's still discrimination. We started with a 30-point lead. Unfortunately, we had to campaign. It's in the middle of the 1976 campaign when speechwriter Patrick Anderson got a call from Norman Mailer, who had just interviewed Jimmy Carter, the candidate for the New York Times magazine. I got something that might cause trouble for you guys, Anderson asks. What is it? The reporter won't say, but he says he'll send Anderson a copy. Well, this is not good news. Because this New York Times Magazine interview, Anderson notes, was supposed to be the cleanup interview. You see, Carter had just had the biggest disaster of his campaign. He had done an interview with Playboy magazine. Uh, I agreed to give the interview uh, to Playboy. Other people have done it who are notable. And for some reason, he ended up telling the magazine he lusted for another woman other than his wife. Well, he said he lusted in his heart and that his faith was routinely tested in what that's what he was saying. But the way it came out was that Carter's out there lusting with people. It was killing him with women voters, with Christian voters who were supposed to be the ones most attracted to this new born-again candidate running in 76. Why did he do an interview with Playboy? It's not like Jimmy goes into Hugh Hefner's mansion or to the Playboy corporate offices and sit down and talks and does an interview. He did an interview with a veteran magazine writer, Bob Shear, who writes for a number of magazines. Yes, he does identify who he's writing for, so it's not like there's deception going on. He was somebody who was following the campaign. He was in the press gaggle, and he was hounding uh, Carter and Jody Powell and the others around the Carter campaign for an interview. There's something else. Playboy had done an interview with Carter's rival in the primaries, California Governor Jerry Brown. And that didn't sink him. In fact, it even made Jerry Brown look a little cooler. Jerry Brown ended up winning Maryland and California and most of New Jersey and a couple other primaries in that election. So, and also perhaps because of his 
image as this kind of uh, Sunday school teacher. Maybe he wanted to reach out a little bit and get new voters. And this is the post-Watergate campaign. We're supposed to be doing everything differently from the other types of presidents. All of these, I think, combined. And also, Scheer is just very insistent, very nagging. And actually, this is what takes place during the interview, too. In fact, Scheer and Carter have several long interviews. And Carter, particularly in the last one, is frustrated with this journalist. Patrick Anderson says that Scheer thought Carter was a freak, and Carter thought Scheer was a freak. You know, the Baptist versus the hippie. And after repeated questions that seemed to ask Carter why, um, you know, why did he think that as a person of faith, of this great Christian, that he, does he think that he's better than people? And then Carter makes a leap. What Christ taught us was about pride, that one person should never think he was better than anyone else. We are all sinners, Carter says. Okay, good enough. I try not to commit deliberate sins, Carter says. Okay, but then the spiral downward happens. I'm humid and I'm tempted. I've committed adultery in my heart several times. To Anderson, those words appear in print, are relentlessly, endlessly focused on, probably bring Carter, you know, it's hard to tell because a couple things happen right around the same time with this campaign. Uh, I agreed to give the interview uh, to Playboy. Other people have done it who are notable, but they weren't running for president. And in retrospect, from hindsight, I would not have given that uh, interview had I, do it, had, it, had I to do it over again if I should ever decide in the future to discuss my, my deep Christian beliefs and... Uh, condemnation and sinfulness, I'll use another forum besides Playboy. But it probably brings Carter down like 20 or 30 points just from this one interview. Patrick Anderson feels like the Playboy interview destroys Carter's lead, destroys his momentum in the campaign, allows Ford to catch up, makes the election closer, and then perhaps even affects his presidency because of all this. Because he doesn't have that landslide that perhaps, you know, after the Watergate scandal... Democrats might have had that over Republicans enough to get a landslide election that might have led to a greater mandate and a more effective presidency. Conjecture, conjecture, conjecture. But an interesting thought from somebody pretty close to Carter at this time. Anderson's, you know, a novelist that uh, the campaign picks up. He's a pretty good speechwriter, but he's really good at working with uh, with Jimmy Carter and the way that Jimmy Carter wants to do speeches. Carter doesn't like traditional speechwriters, you know and uh, picking up on the nuances. And he really does, um, Anderson waits 20 years to write his book about the campaign. Cartoons and commentary focused on Carter's lust for a week. The new novel candidate and a great unified convention that had just happened seemed to be blown away. So you do what campaigns do. You clean it up. You do another interview. You get a respected journalist, Norman Mailer, the New York Times, and get back to message. When the advance copy reaches Patrick Anderson and he's reading it to see what this problem Norman Mailer talked about is, it seems okay. Plains, Georgia was different from what one expected. Maybe it was the name, but anticipation, but anticipation had been of a, of a dry and dusty town with ramshackle warehouses and timeless fly-buzzing sun-baked afternoons. 
Instead, planes was green. Great. This message, Heartland guy, American values exactly what the campaign wants. Quotes in the article about his religion. I feel I have one life to live. God wants me to do the best I can. Great. Right on message. But then at the end of the article, Mailer asks him about making judgments against others. This is the same thing that's going to trip him up with that Playboy interview. And Carter responds, he just almost interjects, I don't care if people say, and of course he said the F word, but, and he doesn't say the, he doesn't say F word, he actually says the word, and it, uh, which will become important. And it was meant to show that he was not judgmental. He was quoting what others say. I don't care if people say. In print, the vulnerable New York Times did not actually spell out the word on its pages, but said F dot dot dot, and then added, and then Carter actually said the famous four-letter word that the Times has not printed in its 125-year history. Okay, so no big deal. Carter said this. It is 1976, except that other reporters followed up with the Times, and the helpful spokesperson at the Times confirmed that the word Carter said was that word. And the media now had not only a lusting and cursing candidate, not only had a lusting candidate, but now a cursing candidate with a filthy mouth to report on. Anderson is just, you know, besides himself. He shows it to press secretary Jody Powell and chief of staff, um, now a campaign manager, Greg Watson. Carter aides look at it, groan. But the consensus was, after Playboy, Carter saying the F word was small. Continued gaffes with a theme of the 1976 election. It was almost a gaffathon between Carter and Ford, but Carter was definitely winning the gaffathon at this point, and not in a good way. Uh, Ford would have his gaffes later. At one point, Carter's in Texas, and he links Nixon and Johnson as two presidents that he didn't want to be like. They were two presidents who had abused power. Lady Bird Johnson, let it be known, she did not appreciate the comments coming from the Democratic candidate about her husband, who is now deceased, and in Texas, which was a swing state in the 1976 election, LBJ, not being on the right side of LBJ, is a problem in Texas. So Carter attempts to clear things up. He tells the papers, there was a statement made, and after the interview, a summation was made of my comments in the newspaper that didn't reflect the real comments. Now, these remarks start another brouhaha, more private insider one with the campaign and the media, because Carter, there was no summary made of his comments. Carter had been on tape and said exactly what he said. The reporter reflected an exact quote. This gets some press attention on its own. Carter would haul reporters into the room and complain about how he was being covered. To no avail. Carter had a way of making these off-message comments. It might have been anchored, Anderson thought, in the feeling that he was a different type of candidate, of showing his transparency that might work one-on-one, but not national, and not mediated. You know, the comments when echoed by many, many newspaper stories and TV reports just come off differently. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, 
Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When Carter started a Harry Truman style train stop trip, Focused on families. That was the message the campaign wanted to get out. Right on the eve of the Republican convention. Carter tells reporters that he thinks the Republicans are going to unveil a vicious attack on him. Well, stories about family or about his train trip are going to be out the window. And headlines are going, and and news copy is going to be talking about this vicious attack. That Carter doesn't know what it is, but what he predicted. Media gaffes made the honeymoon that Carter was having with the campaign, with the media, with the American people over. And and it is truly possible. What otherwise would have been a landslide was turned into a narrow win. August 19, 1976. With the mandate of his party, President Ford spoke from the heart to the heartland of America. Something wonderful happened to this country of ours the past two years. We all came to realize it on the 4th of July. Together out of years of turmoil and tragedy. One of the people on the other side of the 1976 election on the Ford campaign was Dick Cheney, then Ford's chief of staff and managing the campaign. While he is willing to listen to contrary points of view and listen to a debate, uh, he's also extremely aware that there comes a point when the debate has to cease. Here's what he said. They had a plan, and, and we were so behind that in 60 days, we had to persuade over 100,000 people each day to vote for Ford in order to win. I am acutely aware that you have not elected me as your president by your ballots. So I ask you to confirm me as your president with your prayers, my fellow Americans. At first, they try a Rose Garden strategy. It's not working. They blitz the country with President Ford running. They did their own train whistle stop campaign. Got to bring up the Truman image. They get the advantage in most of the debates. Ford comes out a little bit better, a little bit more presidential in the first debate that the two candidates have. They try everything, even some cutesy stuff, one that might have gone too far, like a poster that showed Ford in a leather jacket, kind of uh, like a 50s hoodlum, and it says, Fordsy, with the words, happy days are here again playing off Fonzie from the TV show Happy Days. Hey! They also tried a series of commercials with Joe Garagiola, a baseball player and TV personality, who would ask softball questions to Ford, and Ford would answer back. And then in the last week of the campaign, the comedian and former baseball player and the president are going to be smoking pipes and talking. In the last 10 days, I've been traveling all over America with an extraordinary human being, President Gerald Ford. And I've done it because I believe in this man. You know, I've never done much more before than just vote. But this year, the stakes are just too high to just sit on the sidelines. So on this last night before the election, I want you to see a film about Jerry Ford. 
documentary about his background, about his family, about the job he's already doing, and about his hopes for America. Critics call it the Jerry and Joe show, and I've seen commentary go both ways on it. It's really hard with a narrow election like 1976 to know what happened or what caused what. Um, I've heard that it was silly and didn't help Ford much or that it was brilliant and came and it was one of many things that brought the election closer and humanized Ford. You are the people who pay the taxes and obey the laws. You are the people who make our system work. You are the people who make America what it is. It is from your ranks that I come and on your side I stand. The election may have turned on Gerald Ford's comment in debate number two when he said there is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe. And what's worth, the the reporter gives him a chance to clean this up and say, hey, what did you really mean, Mr. President? And he just continues. He's adamant about it. Um, Dick Cheney interviewed later said that President Ford didn't buy into American recognition of Soviet domination. And he had told him and others that I've always believed that this is what Ford had in mind. Cheney says, I was backstage in the green room watching the debate, and I knew it was problematic. But the debate went on, and the president did a good job. Afterwards, at the St. Francis in San Francisco, we did a debate spin, and I thought things were going fine until Lou Cannon, veteran reporter, shouted at me, how many Soviet divisions are in Poland, Dick? And I knew we'd have a problem. Analysis of Ford's comment shows that it wasn't so much immediately after the debate, but in the days that follow, as people commented about the gaffe, that it really led to a problem for Ford. Also, the election being closed. Ford never gave up on his position. In fact, after the Soviet Union collapsed, Ford would make a point of saying he was right. President Ford has no fear for the future of this country. The America of Gerald Ford is secure. Here's how Thomas M. DeFrank, a reporter who really was uh, covering Gerald Ford for most of his national political career, um, described it in his book. With that one sentence, momentum abruptly shifted back to the challenger. Carter's handlers gleefully exploited their opening, saying Ford had shown that he didn't really have a firm grasp on foreign policy. It took 24 hours of fighting with an unusually stubborn president before Cheney, in a Southern California parking lot, finally persuaded a recalcitrant Ford that he had to issue a clarification to stop the bleeding. So after the debate, Ford doesn't even want to say he does believe there's no Soviet domination. Not really getting that it's being interpreted differently. His handlers had kept him bottled up in the Rose Garden, DeFrank says, for most of the campaign, because as chief strategist Stu Spencer immortally told him to his face in one day, in the Oval Office. Forgive me, Mr. President, but you're an effed-up campaigner. They finally let him out for a final 10-day blitz, and to the surprise of some of his aides, he rose to the theatrical occasion. President Ford unshackled the private sector, providing an unparalleled four million new jobs in one and a half years. Over one half of the grain moving across international boundaries is grown by you. To nobody's surprise, he ended his surge with a rally in Grand Rapids. There is another Ford story that um, 
isn't as well known as the Soviet domination gap. And that was an allegation that comes up that Ford, as a congressman in the 1960s, had diverted large contributions from a maritime union to his own personal use. The investigation drags on for weeks. The maritime union is not supporting the president. The prosecutor, Charles Ruff, is not a Ford fan. Finally, Ruff announces that the charges are unfounded, but it goes from July to October. We probably lost a week of critical time between these two negative events. That's what Dick Cheney felt about the 1976 election. Three days before the election, vice presidential candidate Bob Dole is able to report, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning. National polls showed the race between President Ford and Jimmy Carter continuing to tighten. And the California poll gave Ford a 46 to 40 edge. On October 30th, there's a little nonsense story that President Ford's jet breaks the law by landing at a municipal airport off-limits to planes weighing more than 75,000 pounds. Kent Salden, head of the North Philadelphia Airport Citizens Council, said that he would ask City Councilman Melvin Greenberg to file complaints Monday against the pilots of both Air Force One and an accompanying smaller plane. It created a tremendous hazard to all the homes in this area. No politician is above the law. Air Force One had a listed minimum weight of 130,000 pounds and could weigh as much as 258,000 pounds, according to experts. The New York Times was reporting on the same day, the outcome of the presidential election could be decided by a small group of volunteers working in suburban communities. After millions of miles campaigning, millions of dollars spent, and millions of words uttered, the presidency might go to the party that does the better job of getting out the vote. In the last few weeks, the campaign got off side issues and focused on gut issues. Generally throughout the campaign, Carter used the Watergate issue only indirectly, referring to the Nixon-Ford years. Should he lose on Tuesday, one of the major aspects of the political post-mortem may be an inquiry into the wisdom of this approach, so wrote the New York Times. The underlying strategy of the Ford campaign has been to describe Mr. Carter as unknown, indecisive, deceptive, and therefore a risk the nation should not run. In the last week of the campaign, Mr. Ford combined strategy with tactic. He portrayed Mr. Carter as dangerously inexpert in foreign affairs, saying he proposed venturing into the unknown in a way that could lead to a major international crisis. Mr. Ford had the help of Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Kissinger said Mr. Carter, in effect, had invited a Soviet invasion of Yugoslavia when he said that as president he would use American influence but not American troops to prevent such an invasion. Four days before the election, James Wooten wrote in the New York Times that Jimmy Carter looked back at the The presidential campaign had been grueling and taken from a much of the candor that was a hallmark of his early success. I'm less open now, I know. I don't like it, but I realize it's true. Letters poured into newspapers. This from Harold Youngerman, Floral Park, Long Island, New York. 2,000 years ago, Plutarch warned, The real destroyer of liberties of the people is he who spreads among them bounties, donations, and benefits. 
Over 159 years ago, Thomas Jefferson said, I am for government that is rigorously frugal and simple. In complete disregard of these warnings and history, our liberal politicians are advocating many of the same programs which have brought England to the brink of bankruptcy. That is why I, as an independent, am voting for President Ford. Patricia Risher, New York, New York, wrote to the editor, If Ronald Reagan had been the Republican nominee for president, I feel certain that there would have been a host of prominent Republicans, many of whom have refused to support Senator Buckley, opening openly endorsing the Democratic candidate. As a progressive New York Republican, I feel that the issue is still one of Reaganism in the presidential campaign. President Ford is running on a Reagan-dictated platform, and Mr. Form, oh, Mr. Forbes own attitudes towards New York City unemployment and social issues all echo a highly negative conservative philosophy. For these reasons, I have decided to support the Democratic presidential nominee, Jimmy Carter. The three metropolitan area states, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, are expected to play a major, perhaps decisive, role in the presidential election on Tuesday. These states have 66 electoral votes, nearly a quarter, of the 270 needed to win. All three are conceded to be close by both sides. President Ford is spending two of the last three days of the campaign yesterday and today in New York. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In Houston, President Ford sought today to ride the coattails of a non-candidate, John B. Connolly, to a victory next Tuesday in Texas. At a rally outside the Houston Music Theater, Governor Connolly formerly a Democrat, said that Jimmy Carter would be bad for Texas, and that was bad for America. Mr. Connolly said that the president believed in a defense capability second to none, but Mr. Carter wanted to slash the Pentagon budget. It's two days before the election that a potentially fatal story comes out for Jimmy Carter's campaign. Now, if it was a, a country club, I would have quit. His own church, the Plains Baptist Church, where Carter is not only a congregant but a deacon, had locked its doors and refused to hold services at all rather than let in an African-American, four African-Americans and one minister that attempted to enter the church and sit down. The reason was that in 1965, the Plains Baptist Church had passed a resolution barring anyone who is black and any civil rights agitators. Newspapers pointed out, and the Carter campaign pointed out, that 
the resolution was opposed by Mr. Carter at the time of its passage. And indeed, Carter had been against this so much that um, his own business was boycotted by other townspeople. It soon became known that the Reverend Clennon King of Albany, Georgia, who's African-American and also a perennial candidate. You know, he ran for governor in the Republican primary. He ran for president as part of a very small independent Afro-American party in 1960. He would continue to run for offices even after the 1976 election. He'd move down to Miami and run for mayor of Miami as, as a part of the party of God. Carter's asked about it and says, the only thing I know is that our church for many years has accepted any worshiper who came there. And my own belief is that anyone who lives in our vicinity who wants to be a member of the church, regardless of race, ought to be admitted. For Clinton King's part, asked about the timing of his visit three days before presidential election, he was quoted by saying, there's no timing at all, but God times things. I don't know why God timed it this way. The pastor of the church the Plains Baptist Church, Reverend Bruce Edwards, said that it seemed obvious to me that this is an attempt by enemies of Governor Carter to savage his campaign. But this is not my church, it's God's church. And I can't quit my lifetime of worship, habit, and commitment because of a remnant of discrimination which has been alleviated a great deal in the last 10 years. I hope it'll be eliminated completely in the next few weeks. I can't speak for the church membership. But I'll do all I can within the church to eliminate that last vestige of racial discrimination. By November 2nd, there's more coverage of this uh, report. And church deacons had time on, uh, on Sunday before the election to hold a meeting. Hugh Carter, a cousin of Jimmy Carter, is one of the deacons. He's also a state senator in Georgia. The Atlanta Constitution reports that the meeting of deacons decided to fire the pastor and, you know, the policy of the church is going to be lifted on November 15th, but nothing had been done before the election, and Carter hadn't done anything specifically related to this ban that the church had that had now been so greatly publicized. For Patrick Anderson, in his book, he recalls this as being possibility they were going to lose the election on this issue, and that some reporters were telling him that you guys blew it. But it did not happen that way. Here's how it looks on our map. Almost, it must be 75% red, or for Carter, in the eastern half of the United States. All of the plains and mountain states, South Dakota we don't know about yet, for Mr. Ford. California, Oregon, still undecided. You see where Jimmy Carter's strength lies, primarily in the southeast and the deep south, quite a lot of it in the northeast, Pennsylvania, New York, a fair amount of it in the Midwest. And that is the picture we get when it's put into graphic terms. So Jimmy Carter, by our calculation, has won the presidency of the United States. One final note. Um, when the final votes are tallied, Carter squeaks through with a win and a concession as traditional and necessary. And Ford is not one of these people that are going to be arguing about giving a concession or something like that, like a, a Dewey or a Trump. Or, But there was a problem. 
Ford had lost his voice in that last 10 weeks of hard campaigning. So who could call Carter? Well, Ford tries, and they get just uh, the Carter aides, and Carter entered, um, and Ford talks to the Carter aide before they can get Carter on the phone, introduces his chief of staff, Dick Cheney. And so it is Dick Cheney and not Ford that ends up reading a concession to Jimmy Carter over the telephone. Thank you, everybody. Say just a word. Let me say just a word to you. This, this tremendous crowd at four o'clock in the morning represents hundreds of millions of American people who are now ready to see our nation unified, and I want to congratulate. In Carter's gaffe, there may have been a blessing that American people deserve honesty, a natural candidate who says what he feels. Um, Patrick Anderson kind of had a theory about it, that a lot of it came from Jimmy Carter's mother, Lillian, who was a person who put a high value on authenticity, transparency. Just say what you mean, say what you feel. Of course, Lillian was not running for president. Carter was obsessed with the relationship between the powerful and the not powerful, even when he entered that realm of the powerful, right, of those who could affect policy. He would put things in speeches, Anderson said, like, we can't just look out for big shots like you or like I used to be. And in phrasing, he was adamant. He complained to Anderson, his speechwriter, everyone in politics always says they when they refer to the American people. But they shouldn't. It's we. I'm one of them. And so obviously Anderson complied with that in the speeches. The American people were we. And my advice and my counsel and my criticism comes from you. And if I can tap the greatness that's in you and in the American people, we can make our nation's government great and a source of pride once again. I don't think a lot of politicians have picked up on that or use that. Anderson does note that he tried this with even VP Mondale running with Carter and tried to say, you know, Carter prefers that we say we. He nodded, but he still kept saying they. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. There is a link there to the Patreon site uh, where you can help support us and also get a special episode and some other special episodes, one of which is Giraffe Johnson, LBJ, his withdrawal, and the 1968 Chicago Convention. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.